Hi, welcome to It's Like This podcast, your common sense mental and spiritual talk show. My name is Dr. Eugene Kim, a dual board certified psychiatrist from Texas. In this podcast, I explain mental and spiritual concepts with fun analogies, real stories, and positive message so you can not just survive, but thrive. My goal for you is to gain understanding, acceptance, and healing so that you can know your worth and live the life that you are meant to live. If you want that as much as I do, hit that subscribe button and let's listen to today's episode. In this episode, we're going to be talking about trauma. My statistics about trauma is so real and is so sad. About six out of eight, every 10 men, about 60%, or five out of every 10 women, about 50%, experience at least one trauma in their lives. And Samson reported that at least one in seven children have experienced child abuse and or neglect in the past year. That is amazingly high. So I know that this episode is going to hit home with a lot of you guys. It affects everybody, not only just the victim, but the perpetrator and the families and friends around. But I want to kind of focus on trauma and I want to explain trauma in a way that maybe is unexplored because it really hints at the spiritual question of what do I deserve? Did I deserve this? Did I deserve such evil thing in my life? We're going to break down the trauma into components that really points to the spiritual significance of traumatic events. And I'm going to be careful as much as possible since this is a very sensitive topic, but I do have a trigger warning in this episode, especially if you have a traumatic past, this episode might elicit unpleasant memories or sensations. On the other hand, I do think the information in this episode will help you. I would really encourage you to listen with somebody that you trust to help you stay grounded and thoughts reframed. So let's talk about trauma. The word trauma originates from Greek and it means wound. So Webster's Dictionary says trauma means a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. You know, nowadays we hear the word trauma like very, very frequently A breakup could be a traumatic experience or the unexpected ending of a Netflix series can be described as traumatic. But I really want to bring back the word back to the origin and capture the gravity of it. Trauma causes wounds and sometimes physical wounds, sometimes sexual wounds, but almost always emotional wounds, mental wound, and spiritual wound. They're two big categories of trauma, big letter T trauma and small letter T trauma. Big letter T trauma is when your physical life was threatened, like car accidents, natural disasters, rape, or physical assault. And small letter T trauma is when you are threatened um, and in a very unsafe setting, but not necessarily to the point of a threat to your physical life, like inappropriate sexual touching, neglect, or bullying at various degrees. But I will tell you that the wound is not necessarily smaller just because it's a small letter T trauma. I want to make some observation points, you know, from psychiatrist's perspective about trauma. 
before we kind of dig into the components of trauma. Same traumatic event can happen to two different people, and they can leave different levels of severity of wounds. One might not have any signs of PTSD or emotional or mental wound. The one could have very severe levels of PTSD and severe you know, signs of wounds. And they're both acceptable, and they're both appropriate response to the same trauma. This doesn't not this difference does not make, you know, trauma for one person with little to no signs of PTSD insignificant, or the person who has greater signs of PTSD and wound any weaker. You know, the different response to same trauma happens all the time. And also, it is possible that the same perpetrator who violates one person can be a loving father or a friend to someone else. I think it's important to note here that, as a victim, this truth can be so hard to accept and it's internally gaslighting. And I think the fact this truth has been used to gaslight the victim and his or her narrative. I just want to take a moment to empathize with the victim because you might have heard directly or indirectly that your narrative is wrong or inaccurate because the perpetrator has not wronged anyone else. I want you to know that your narrative matters here and actually doesn't need anyone else to validate it. But I also want to focus on you and your health first rather than painting this perpetrator into a 110% evil person. I think um, in a following interview with... Uh, therapist Jenny Lee will be talking about, you know, what does it mean for uh, somebody who witnessed abuse or neglect, you know, how do they move forward? And it actually matters less about the perpetrator getting justice. It matters more about you. So I just want to kind of dedicate this episode to you to validate your narrative, but also focus on your health and healing first. So let's talk about the components of trauma. And I'm going to try to simplify this as much as possible, but it's so complex and complicated as you could imagine, but I'm going to try my best to simplify it. At every event of trauma, there are two components. There's lack of consent and there's presence of pain. And because of these two components of trauma, a lot of implications happen and applications happen in your life. And I'm going to be digging that a little bit deeper. So when we say consent, I want to kind of use the examples of how I give consent for treatment, you know, for my patients when they come into my office. It is my job to explain the pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages of each treatment options, including not getting treated. I'm to explain the prognosis and diagnosis of the illness at hand and what it would mean and what each treatment or lack of treatment would change the course, okay? In this dialogue of consent, it has to be appropriate for the listener of the consentee of you know their age and maturity and developmental milestones. It has to be accurate and true. And it has to respect that person and their autonomy to make that consent. And we have to deem that that person is, has a capacity to consent. So a lot of times when we think a patient has some, you know, psychosis or dementia and they cannot really understand the pros and cons, there is a series of, 
you know, um, evaluations that we do to, to say that they have capacity or not, right? So I'm going to be using examples of abuse and neglect and just kind of explain how there was lack of consent. A lot of times I hear situations where the victim of sexual assault was intoxicated, right? And they wake up and they believe that they gave consent to the perpetrator because, you know, they said yes or they were part of the act. When a person is intoxicated to the point that they cannot, you know, differentiate what is a risk versus benefit of an encounter, this is not a proper consent. They were not, they did not have capacity to consent. So I just want you to know that when you're intoxicated and you quote unquote gate consent, this is not a fair consent. I also heard stories of, you know, similar sexual assault where the victim were gaslighted or threatened, right? So if you don't do this, then your family's going to suffer. Or if you don't do this, then I'm going to embarrass you. Or you brought this assault to yourself because you were wearing that outfit. This is not a fair consent dialogue. This is a threat. This is not a true pros and cons of each act, right? So this is not a fair consent when you are threatened to be embarrassed or to have your loved ones in danger. Or that perpetrator is passing on their responsibility of abuse to the outfit of the victim. And also it has to be developmentally appropriate. So a lot of adults who perpetrate minors, they say things like, if you tell this to your mom, then you're going to get in big trouble or, you know, they're going to get hurt or this is going to be our little secret. This is age inappropriate consent. I will just say that my, my five-year-old kid cannot decide if he wants chocolate cake from a strawberry cake. You know, if you ask him multiple times, he'll get so annoyed and he'll have decision fatigue from choosing what flavor of cake that he wants. Imagine if you're asking for quote-unquote consent for a minor with a threat with unimaginable disadvantage if he tells the truth. This is unfair consent. So now you can kind of see the patterns of the ideals of consent and how in each traumatic event, there's no consent, there's no fairness, there's no appropriateness, and there's no respect for the victim of trauma. And this is how I define lack of consent component of trauma. Now there is a second component of trauma, and it's presence of pain. And nobody likes pain. I don't think anyone would, you know, go out of their way to welcome painful events, especially rape or abuse or neglect in their lives. And a lot of times, because of pain, it really confuses the victim. Pain being so painful, they do not want to go through it again. So then it kind of rewires their decision-making process to avoid the pain and maybe to have a sense of control to not experience pain again. And let me just give you some of the examples of how presence of pain can warp your decision-making. So pain puts us in a fight-or-flight response. It drives us to run. Remember the episode 7 and 8 on anxiety. Pain is the trigger, and it triggers a fight-or-flight response. And after that response, there's a compensatory behavior. 
and running to get answers or even sense of control, it confuses us to go to solutions, even the wrong ones, running to get away and find even temporary safety. This pain in trauma makes us desperate, confused, and very vulnerable. One of the classic ways that people kind of make that compensatory behavior out of pain of traumatic event is that they try to put themselves in in a seemingly safer environment. Maybe to escape the abusive boyfriend, you enter another relationship back to back to have that sense of security to protect you. And even if he was a little bit less abusive, but still abusive, you will take that over your past experiences. Or I've heard victims of sexual assault telling themselves that they're consenting to it to enjoy it. Or I see a kid in a more uh, dangerous neighborhood joining the gangs that killed their siblings or cousins by drive-by to get that sense of authority over avoiding pain. You know, if you can't beat them, you join them kind of mentality. Or as a victim of trauma or abuse or emotional abuse, you'll start to build up anger and bitterness and start to take revenge or hurt someone else. Another perfect example of avoiding you know, component of pain is that you start to want numbness of that pain. That pain, not only of the exact event, but the ricochet of pain. Why me? Or what have I done after that happened? This kind of pain of disappointments and not meeting the expectations builds up. And a lot of times PTSD will lead to life of recklessness. And that's one of the you know, PTSD criterias. And sometimes people will, you know, enter into substance abuse or even hypersexual behaviors or even driving, you know, recklessly speeding on the highways. And this is explained by wanting to be numb from the pain. And um, how I like to describe the PTSD recklessness versus manic recklessness is that when you're manic, you have a sense of purpose that you, only you can provide to the world. And you start to uh, feel very grandiose about your um, abilities and your roles in this world. But PTSD recklessness, recklessness is almost like your life doesn't matter anymore. And um, they don't really care if they live or die. So they live in that fine line of danger. And that's how I describe the PTSD recklessness. So pain, the component of presence of pain and trauma, I just want you to know that there is a powerful component of trauma and it will confuse you to enter into solutions or situations that are not ideal, that are not the best for you, but because it creates that confusion and makes you vulnerable, it leads you to these solutions that are less than best. And this often leads the victims of one traumatic event more vulnerable to future traumas. Now let's bring the two components together, lack of consent and presence of pain. And in one traumatic event, how does that apply or imply in our life? So when there's a presence of pain without our consent, and that was usually done by higher power, like natural disasters or car accidents, something that, you know, Nobody was intentionally trying to harm you versus a, a, a human being 
who's intentionally taking something or hurting you and bringing the pain to your life. And what it does at the end of the day, it makes us question our worth and what we deserve. Do I deserve consent? Do I deserve respect? What kind of control do I have in my life? Do I deserve safety? Do I deserve food, shelter, and clothing? Do I deserve attention? Do I deserve acceptance? Do I deserve healing? There's a lot of questions of what do I deserve and what do I have control over? That tension between our basic needs versus luxurious needs, it really blurs the boundaries of what you deserve. A lot of times, victims were gaslighted and threatened to ask for these basic needs, right? Respect, safety, and acceptance, or even just civil rights to report crime. So at the end of the day, the mixture of lack of consent and presence of pain, the victim starts to question and they don't feel entitled to ask for something so basic. They start to question their worth, and this you can kind of revisit the episode 10 and 11 on depression of worth, because traumatic events definitely shapes your sense of worth. And what do you, why do I matter? What do I deserve? All these questions come up after traumatic events. And really one of the interesting observations that I had was I have a lot of patients who went through traumatic event. And there is a question of what do I deserve, right? And at the end, after, you know, after the crisis moment has subsided and they're entering into journey of healing, they really don't have an, any expectation of their potentials in their life. And let me explain this. I have, it's almost like a very thematic thing when my PTSD patients, they ask me, do I deserve healing? Can I hope and dream for healing? Is this the best it's going to get? Because just tell me and I'll accept it until I die. But it's almost like it's too painful to hope that something better could happen. And this is a very common theme of my PTSD patients. And I just want to pause here and tell you, you did not deserve what happened to you. No one deserves what happened to them, especially if it's hurtful, toxic, unsafe, dangerous, and unconsented, unfairly consented. But on the other hand, there's evil in the world. So how can we bring that together? I want to separate the event from your worth and what you deserve. You do not deserve that. You do not need that. You deserve something better. You deserve safety, you deserve acceptance, you deserve validation, and you deserve healing. And you can get that. Your road might be looking very different from somebody who did not go through what you went through. But you deserve that. And you can get that. It just might look different to get there and when you get there. But I want to just separate the worth and what you deserve away from the event. So I hope that this episode, you know, really kind of tickled you a little bit 
into unearthing some of the memories. But I I didn't go too deep into it because I know that this is a sensitive topic. So in summaries like this, every traumatic event leaves wounds. And the size of the wounds or depth of the wounds has nothing to do with the strength of the victim or the significance of traumatic event. Everybody has different response and that is okay. And also, that same perpetrator can be a loving father or mother to somebody else and they were a perpetrator to you. That is not okay and that should not happen. But it could be true. It could be the facts. And this fact might have used been used indirectly or directly to gaslight your narrative. And I'm not here to invalidate your narrative. Your de- narrative stands here and is valued here. But I want to focus on you and your healing than justifying or judging the perpetrator's whole person. I want to focus on you. And then I broke down the components of traumatic event, that there's lack of consent and presence of pain. And the combination of both will, will leave anybody questioning what they're worth. What do I deserve? Do I matter? Why did this happen to me? And it might be used to devalue you, lower your worth. But I want, at the end of the day, I want to separate the event from your worth. And you did not deserve what happened to you. And you deserve healing. You deserve acceptance. You deserve validation. And the journey is going to look very different, but you can get there. And I hope that you stay for the next of the trauma breakdown. And I'm going to be talking about how to turn that narrative around. Maybe you're in a stage where because of traumatic events, you lived a reckless life. Maybe you hurt other people and you have led quote-unquote life of disappointments or chronic numbness with substance abuse at this point how can we turn that narrative around so i hope that you stay tuned for the next episode and thank you so much for being here and i love you guys and i'll see you next time